There is a chasm between you and I, Charles. A gap that cannot be crossed. With each passing day, I fear it never will be. Welcome to the Xavier's Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Rain Coleman. This podcast is a carefree black nerd examination of the newest dawn of the X-Men. Guys, when you're listening to this podcast, please live tweet and comment using the hashtag Xavier's Dream Pod and XDPod. Also, subscribe on your favorite podcast listening apps. Now, guys, really quickly, for those of you out there who have been listening, go on over to Spotify and follow me there. I am now available on Spotify, Carefree Black Nerd Podcast, which includes all media, um, especially Xavier's Dream Pod, <laughs> is available on Spotify. Go ahead and share the show, guys. Um, share it on your social medias. Share it uh, through your Instagram stories and all that good stuff. And now, without further ado, we are here at episode 4, Powers of X, Powers of 10, actually. We are together now, you and I. Alright, y'all, we back. We are back again with another installment. Needless to say, Hickman again is firing on all cylinders. So, we are now into the second issue of Powers of 10, which is so strange. It feels like this has been going on for much, much longer than four weeks. It doesn't feel like there's only four episodes, four episodes, <laughs> four issues out, but that is the case. Um, I do like that we're getting this every week. We're getting an installment of either Powers of Ten or House of X. So good there. Again, guys, as before, the creative team for Powers of Ten. Jonathan Hickman as the writer, R.B. Silva as the artist, R.B. Silva and Adriano Di Benedito as the inkers, Marte Gracia, the color artist, V.C.'s Clayton Cowles as the letterer, Tom Mueller as the designer. Um, the cover artist for this installment is R.B. Silva and Marte Gracia. Now, a lot of stuff has been going on. Uh, where we are now, you know, before getting into the issue... Something I'm interested in, I brought up to my um, comic book shop worker or whatever. I said, how is this series going to be collected? I think I mentioned it before in the last episode or the one before. I understand that we're telling two, we're telling one story, but it's split between two different limited series that are interconnected week by week. I have not read just House of X and just Powers of Ten on their own. I've still read them um, as the story, as they were released. But I wonder, will it be a trade paperback of House of X and a trade of Powers of Ten, or will it be a complete omnibus of the entire 12 issues? Uh, The lady at the comic book store said she was just speculating, but she said what she thinks is going to happen is you're going to get, like I said before, one trade of Powers of X, Powers of Ten, and one trade of House of X. And then maybe later on, sometime in the far future, you'll get the 12 issues collected. Now, I know that's really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, considering we're still just scratching the surface of these two series. But it's something that I was um, interested in. I wanted to know. So um, if you guys have any insight, of course, tweet me, Carefree Blurred. Just use that hashtag, Xavier's Dream Pod and XDPod. And let me know, or even what you think they sh- or how you think they should collect it. I'm not 100% sure on what I would prefer, um, especially because I'm getting the single issues as they come out, Um, but I'm interested to see how this will be collected. So, 
uh, we arrive uh, in year one. The X-Men, uh, man. Okay, so we open up at Magneto's Fortress of Solitude, I suppose. <laughs> We're on Island M. This is in the Bermuda Triangle. And Moira McTaggart and Charles Xavier have just gotten off of a yacht, it looks like. And they she's wheeled him. And that's another thing. We all know Professor Xavier has been in a wheelchair since the dawn of time. Um, I know this is subtle and I can't speak too much to this because I am, I do not um, walk that life. I am not um, handy capable, but I like seeing him in this wheelchair. Um, I like seeing how you have to, how do I say, you have to uh, maneuver with him where it's, uh, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm just, everything's heightened because I'm so into the series because there's only a few panels where you even see this. But I do like that we have that representation of someone who is in a wheelchair. Though this is one of the most powerful telepaths in the world, I still like that. Um, and that they're keeping it and it seems tasteful. Uh, if you don't agree or if you do agree, let me know. So, Moira and Charles approach Magneto in his full purple fuchsia mix match 1960s uh, era outfit that is really hasn't changed that much. And he is very suspicious of why they're here to the point where he does his little uh, Shonda Rhimes type monologue and he ends with, so what are you doing here, Charles? And you can tell the difference in the lettering. Uh, that's something that I did enjoy. But Magneto speaks in a way that is just so verbose, so grandiose, so unnecessarily, I don't know, fool, for lack of a better term. And he... It's still the same here, but it, it is, he's of that time. And I don't know if this was intentional, but it feels as if you may be reading something from way back in the day when comics had 12 paragraphs in a word balloon on every comic page. So pretty much uh, Charles is being pretty, uh, let me see, not coy, really uh Jaded, I don't know, hell, y'all. <laughs> he's being uh, very sly with how he's approaching uh, Magneto. And you can see the frustration because Charles is like, oh, I'm here to see you, old friend. And Magneto's like, come on, bro, this, cut the shit. I cannot tell you how much it would please me to know that you and I would stand side by side in the coming days. But I have learned hard lessons and no longer believe that there's a place in this world for both your dreams and and mine old friend and it's like this back and forth this not even catty it's just like what are we doing like what do you really want this is me being magneto like what do you want why are you here we both have a dream that should be should end in the same result but not so much um another thing that i like is that we have established that there are several lives of Moira mctaggart Moira x and when I first read this, seeing that Moira and Charles are together in older adult age, it made me go back and look through the different timelines of Moira X. Um, and I'll come to the conclusion that we are in one of those last two, nine or ten. Um, I'm going to get a little bit more into that later because I found a thread of a guy on Twitter who 
had some some interesting thoughts and I'll read a few of his tweets uh, in a bit but I said we must be existing in one of these lives we can't possibly be in one of the first eight considering one we don't know where six is at all and then the others Mora has been dead um so I, I don't I, it's, it's a lot it's a lot you all know that Hickman is telling a very heavy story and it's a lot to unpack here but I do like that we get these three interacting and it's not a lot of action but this story is still so good uh, so Magneto is pretty much trying to get Xavier to, to, to get to the point to the point where he turns to Moira he's like look you are a specialist in mutant behavior what the hell is going on with the professor and she says you know I may be the only person on this planet who truly understands and ails you both what ails you both excuse me and that, that though it is a small panel of her kind of pleading her case or trying to get uh, Magneto to understand what it is, where she's coming from. It's so powerful considering we just read the 10 lives of Moira X. This one panel encompasses, it's so heavy because it has the 10 lives or depending on where we are in the, in the life cycle of Moira, it has at least five lives worth of experience in these few bubbles here. So she says, well, I may be the only person on this planet who truly understands what ails you both. But I have to warn you, my truth is profound and life-changing. It's primal, and I wonder if you are capable of bearing the weight of it. It really all comes down to one thing, Magneto. In this world, who determines what is truly good and what is truly evil? Now this, before we got our answer, I immediately was like, I don't know, religion, society. But to my surprise, Magneto says, I do. I decide. So I don't know if that was literally Moira saying in this world, this world that we're inhabiting right now in this moment, you decide what is good and evil or a general in the world who makes the decision or what makes the decision of what's good and evil. And I'm more am to think that she's talking about this timeline we're in currently just because his response was, I do. And it wasn't like those in power. Like he said, I do as I am the one who decides, which there's something there. There has to be something. There. <laughs> I like that everyone who is reading House of uh, X and Powers of Ten, we're all in this like mystery solving mode. This collective, continuous, um, I don't know, fascination with trying to figure out what's next. And not even to necessarily spoil the story, but to try to get our heads around what the hell Hickman is doing here. Hickman and his team. I uh, don't want to leave them out. But uh, it's so interesting. There is a Charlie Day, or Odell, O'Day, excuse me, from um, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. There's this meme of him, like, connecting the red strings to different pieces of paper, like at a precinct uh, or something and that's been circulating and every time I read one of these books that's exactly how I feel <laughs> exactly like that so um, Xavier continues then um, then open your mind to me open it to us and together we will figure out what to do about tomorrow and so Magneto is very hesitant which as he should be in this time we are in the first year of X-Men I don't think the X-Men proper have been established yet although they they may be you know these timelines have been slightly altered by Hickman so I'm not entirely sure but 
and Nino has pause, and he should because again, though we have parallel ideas of what should be the fate of mutants and mutants and humans, we're on two extreme, we're two ends of the spectrum. So. Xavier, please, you know, please just trust me. And Magneto, because this entire time he's been wearing his helmet, which for whatever reason can block psychic powers. He takes it off. Xavier grabs Morva's hand. He touches his temple and he feeds Magneto the visions of what it looks like. One, two, three, four, five. It's either five different lives or this is representation of all of uh, the lives that Mora has led. And I love that <laughs> he's screaming in agony in the, uh, in the timelines. But then he says, <laughs> you're a mutant and all those lives wasn't real. And again, talk about cinematic. This is something that I want to see played out on screen. Like I'm, I'm convinced or I've convinced myself <laughs> that these two limited series are what's going to be the storylines that are folded into the MCU. They have to because it's so easy to say the Infinity War saga is just one of Moira's timelines. Like what if that's six, her sixth life? And then we like it's so me it's so it's, Bruh, I'm so excited. So she yeah, she says, yes, I'm a mutant. And then that was as real as it gets. And he asks, why would you show me all the great failures? And this is what I like. Um, here is that, one, I like that we're having this conversation. And it feels very real. Everything they're saying, though this is fictional and it's the fantastical of it all, a lot, it feels real. Uh, so Charles says, you know, because the truth is profound and it's life-changing, just like Moira said. Um, and a part we always lose. We believe it's only together that you and I, all our people can survive. And next up, Charles, you know better than this. I'm not interested in survival. And that's the thing here. Okay, so we've, with the mutants, since day one, it's always kind of the underlying thing has been survival. Yeah, you've been hated and feared and you're saving the world or whatever else, but it's always about doing the right thing, but also surviving as like this last thought. Our most important thing is to save the humans and stop this ever-present war from coming and whatever evil power, but ultimately it's also been to survive. And I think that Hickman is bringing that idea of survival to the forefront as opposed to it being some passive thing that just... Um, is assumed in these stories. Moira says, good, because I'm not either. I believe that the one thing I haven't tried yet, all of mutantum as one, is the thing that means more than just surviving, but thriving and assuming our rightful place on this earth. We have a plan. It's ambitious and long-term. Join us, Eric. Join me. Uh, and so they're giving considering the the history the many lives that they've just poured into Eric's head and they're not necessarily pleading but offering him a seat at the table shout out to Solange within all this Eric is still Eric he's still Magneto <laughs> he says I won't acquiesce to sympathy or doubt Charles I won't give an inch I will check you at every moment of weakness and if you falter, 
No, that I will not. And it's just like, bruh, we just gave you so much creditable history showing you that we will do better working together, giving you examples and proof. And yet you with us, but you still like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm with you. But understand, I'm going to check your ass. Like, he just so, I love it. I love it. And so they shake. Uh, the screen goes black. And we open up on what? Year 10, which is the present day, which is us here on Krakoa. Now, with this, we get the, uh, what I think is a biodome. Y'all, I'm still trying to figure out what the heck is going on. So we're in Krakoa, but... It's Krakoa in year 10 existing in year 10,000 or 1,000 or whatever it is in a biodome that preserves time. I don't know. At this point, I don't think any fan theory is silly. I don't think anything is unwarranted. I don't think anything is is uh, out of the realm of possibility. So who knows what's up? Okay, so... We get uh, Scott, and he is on panel talking. He's like, what am I looking at? And we see this big, huge Sentinel-type face on these many different, um, I'll just say, I don't know, screens. And it's Scott talking to Charles. And this is present day, so this is Charles with the kind of motorcycle helmet with the X, the cerebral helmet. He says, this is a nightmare. A walking one at the beginning of the end, unless I'm mistaken. These are plans for a mother mode, a master mode that makes other master modes in orbit around the sun. Now, master mode is a signal that creates other signals. For whatever reason, these signals seem to be the most, um, let's see, the most uh, tenacious adversary of the X-Men, of mutants in general. These things are reincarnated in every single iteration of the X-Men, and they're always there to step on their necks. With these Sentinels, I'm wondering, and this is a quick aside, if the government has all these funds, all these funds to pour into a Sentinel program to make all of these machines, then in the Marvel Universe, in Marvel Comics, there should be no one hungry, college should be free, Everyone should have great paying jobs. There should No one should want for anything. Because if you have money to dump into this program, you got to be taking care of everything else. Like, yeah, the mutants to you are a threat. But God dang, how many resources are going towards all of these different machines? I don't know, man. So, getting back to the story. Now... The plan, though, so Xavier said that these are plans for the mother mode. Now, the mother mode, I think, is a new, um, is a new idea that Hickman created and poured into this book. Now, Scott is a bit concerned because it's like, you know, does this, when you say that it's scheduled to be built, is this something that's already that already exists? And the conversation between him and Scott, him, uh, Xavier and Scott, is again, a lot of this just feels real. So. He's uh what Charles responds is that this is a program that is in its most dormant phase and it's waiting for the right thing, the right catalyst to awaken it, which is terrifying in itself. 
Because like, okay, yeah, the Sentinels go after mutants unless they're there wiping them all out. There's a lot of collateral damage to innocent humans and innocent people. Not that the mutants are guilty of anything outside of existing, but it's like, I, I just, I can't help but when I read stories like this, applying it to real life. And if this was real, all of the shit that would go on, like, man, the human population would be down just by virtue of the Sentinel attacks, having collateral damage. Just think if there's a fight near a hospital and then a Sentinel accidentally blows up the a side of it and then the power is out and how many people may be on life support or maybe their livelihood is hooked up to some something that needs to be plugged up. Or so I just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll get too deep with it. Let me know. So we get to, uh, we, we continue with the conversation and what Scott says is the thing that is going to set off or the catalyst that's going to awaken this mother mode would be a mutant whose reach exceeds far from his grasp. So, Magneto is on another screen, or in the room, looking at another screen with the Orkis symbol on it. I have to say, the Orkis program, uh, soldiers, all that, they are the Illuminati. They are evil. Like, you've collected all this data on mutants, and, and, and you're following them, and you're getting their history, and you're observing them, and you're creating these programs. What? I, why? What is... Why? Why are you doing this? <laughs> Leave them alone. But, um, yeah, so Magneto goes ahead and explains what the Orkis is. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. O-R-C-H-I-S. Let me know if I am not or if I am. Hell, he says uh, it is a collection of human scientists who are normally ideologically opposed to one another. But in mutantdom, they see a threat so great that they have bound together in order to stop us. According to the information Mystique stole from Damage Control, we've discovered that it's most likely X-Shield and AIM agents with some remnant sword and hammer operators sprinkled in. And if you're wondering about their level of conviction, they've also held their noses long enough to Operation Paperclip and a few X-Hydra as well. Now, Operation Paperclip, I'm not sure if that is something that already exists in the Marvel Universe or if that's something that will be uncovered here. Uh, for those of you who are longtime Marvel fans, stands, and the other, let me know. Some things I'm trying not to look too much into because, again, I'm using the House of X and the Powers of Ten as a jumping on point so that I can see, again, if I can fall in love with the X-Men like I have before. But if you do have some knowledge, let me know. Tweet me, Carefree Blurred. Use that hashtag, Xavier's Dream Pod or XDPod. Also, real quick, guys, if you want to get a message onto the show, you have a question, a comment, something that you want to be heard by the masses, email me at carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com. Doing that by leaving a uh, voice memo or a some type of audio message that I'll attach to the show so that you will be heard. Uh, use the subject line, Xavier's Dream, Xavier's Dream Pod, something to that effect, and let me know. So... Within this conversation, we're pretty much getting down to figuring out what it is that we're going to do, how much time that we have, and what the future has in store for us. So, Scott, and I'm assuming he's maybe the leader of the X-Men in this iteration, but we haven't gotten the full scope of the X-Men as a team yet. So, Scott's asking, what's the plan? 
Xavier, it's really quite simple. We cannot let the mother mode come online. Now, with that being said, if this mother mode is waiting for a mutant that far exceeds its reach that will activate it, how do you, let me see, how can you stop it from coming online? Like, if, let's say they travel out to mother mode and then in the middle of their trip to mother mode, some mutant does this thing that sets it off then there's nothing you can do. Like, there's no... I guess it's just a race against time, I'd imagine. So Scott says, um, sure, in response to Charles, sure, because the weather's always a sketchy proposition. You never know when it's going to start raining sentinels. So I guess he's a more lighthearted guy. Um, that wasn't funny, but <laughs> I get it. So, again, we sp they're speaking about Nimrod as well. Uh, and then the Nimrod, they have a picture of him from what we see in the futures of the powers of 10 line. Now, this is where stuff kind of get real. Xavier says, listen to me, Scott. They have to be stopped. Remember, this will be a frontal assault on an orbital station tens of millions of miles away, built by a secret organization whose sole purpose is the extinction of mutants. Can such a thing even be done? Scott says, Does it need doing? Xavier responds, Yes. Scott replies, Then it will be done. Now that may not seem like a lot listening to me read that on the page, but seeing this, pan this whole page laid out is some of the... It's, it's so badass to me. Like, you have... Okay, I'd never really been a fan of Cyclops when I was reading comics and when I watched the 92 X-Men cartoon. I kind of fell for him in the later years, uh, last few years, maybe the last, I don't know, six years or so, uh, with him kind of rebelling and when he was imbued with the Phoenix Force and when him and Emma were together and when he started this underground school, like the more radical Scott. And this gives me kind of a mix of both. And I like this. But the very fact that he says, does it need doing, then it will be done. Like something about that was so heavy and so good, man. Y'all don't understand. Or maybe you do. <laughs> Nimbus was once called Nibiru. It began as a frozen gas giant on an elliptical solar orbit that extended beyond the Cooper Belt. Following the Badoon infestation of the early 31st century, the Outreach Project was created to convert Nibiru into a super-intellect in the hopes of attracting, and establishing, a pseudo-alliance with the Type III interstellar civilization. Mirroring the Cree intelligence model, 100 of the greatest post-human scientists, scholars and artists of their generation submitted to copying, and integration of their minds into a single thinking machine, called Nimbus. Housed in a Nimrod shell, Nimbus' journey from Earth to Nibiru took approximately four years. When it crashed into Nibiru, Nimbus tore through the upper atmosphere and mantle of the ice giant and used the force of the impact to inject its self-replicating machines into the core of the planet. As Nibus consumed converted the iron and nickel core into an ever-increasing number of memory farms and logic crystals, its intelligence lever grew until the goals of the Outreach Project were achieved. 
Nimbus achieved world mind status 10 years after impact. A more linear path would have seen the intelligence arrive sooner, but it stopped to consume multiple Saturnian and Jovian moons in order to increase its density and intellect, which it calculated would increase the conversion rate of Nibiru. And we're back to the future. We are in the year 100. This is on asteroid K. Now, we have uh, Wolverine, which I'm assuming is Old Man Wolverine. We have Rasputin 4, we have Cardinal, and we have Magneto in his best Polaris outfit. <laughs> Speaking to someone off panel where he says, he being uh, Wolverine, Well, boss, Cardinal and Rasputin said they succeeded, which I suppose is good news. But the bad news is, Cyclobel and Percival aren't making it home. And without Percival's blackout abilities, I'm not exactly sure if the information still benefits us. I don't see how we can make it back into the city. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh so he's talking to a boss off screen so remember with the uh what episode i think it was episode two where we well i posed the question who is boss who is this man is it xavier who is the fallen um leaders of the mutants who are they well we find out uh eventually that the boss is apocalypse which i feel like i knew no i didn't know that specifically but i feel like i th that wasn't a big surprise that he was the boss. Also, with the artwork, they didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> if it was meant to be a big reveal, they didn't do a good enough job in making that be that. Because his hand, which clearly the only person whose hand looks like that, is Apocalypse. But, whatever. So, um, Apocalypse is now leading the X-Men. Which I like that. Because, again, he's always been the whole survival of the fittest. You know, only people who's going to survive are who, whoever can uh, advance and, and adapt to changes and this and that, which is easy enough to say when you are a mutant whose whole power is you're able to do that. You are usually the most powerful. But the fact that these humans got apocalypse on the run, even though it's 100 years in the future, that has to say something. Like, And also looking at who we have here. So we have uh, Logan, who probably is never going to die for real. We have Apocalypse, who has been living forever. And then we have uh, Rasputin and Cardinal. I don't really I don't really count them because they're relatively new. But then you have Magneto, who may also be a... Um, uh, what is the, the thing? Like a manufactured mutant, uh, much like Rasputin. And I forget the name for it. Why do I want to say Chimera? Because that is it, a Chimera. So, uh, so yeah, so Apocalypse is pretty much like, you know, forgive him, you know, war has limited his perspective, give me the uh, flash drive, which is so interesting because in House of X, we're dealing with all this information on the flash drive as well. In Apocalypse, I don't even think I have a good voice for him, but <clears throat> uh, Cardinal hands over the kind of flash drive thing to him and you can see the scale of how large his hands is and how small this device is so apocalypse says <clears throat> reduce down to their essence the machines are composed of pure information a respiratory of knowledge which is such a precarious thing in the hands of the living too much knowledge and the weak are paralyzed by choice too little and the foolish jump boldly into the gaping maw of hungry enemy. But just enough, a little fire from the gods, 
and it is the great sword of victory and worth everything to have. Give me your eyes, children, for this I would have sacrificed you all. It means that much. <laughs> like, hold the fuck up. Bruh, I get it, but dang, that was that was heavy. So pretty much whatever that there whatever whatever it is on this flash drive is something that is of immense importance. The fact that Apocalypse, who is running the X-Men and his whole thing is survival of the fittest, is now in possession of this thing which he would have killed everyone else for. We gotta see what the hell is on this flash drive. So we cut to the tower of Nimrod, uh, where he is speaking with two humans. Now, look, what I'm confused on is if Nimrod, if these are actually humans or if these are like manufactured people, um, not Chimera, but just people who were like grown for this. And I guess my confusion, and it may just be me misinterpreting it, but there's two men, they have these pink, like, I believe maybe painted marks on their face and Nimrod is kind of going on this little Shonda Rhimes type rant. Uh, and he says, they stole an indexing machine. This is disturbing. I will not lie. And I tell you that because contrary to what your kind has been led to believe, I am not programmed for truth. I could lie all day if I wanted to just for the pleasure of it. But here I am denying myself the joy of half truth, the bliss of fiction and a pure delight of falsehood. And why? I'll tell you. And the fact that Nimrod said, um, contrary to what your kind has been led to believe, makes me think that these are like regular humans. But then, I don't know what it is about this that made me think that maybe they were grown. But I'll, I'll get back to it. Well, uh, the one guy sarcastically says, no, really, I'd rather you keep talking to yourself, which is odd. Um, if I'm working for a machine who is hell-bent on destroying mutants and has the powers capable of doing so, and I've seen him do that in my presence, why would I talk smart to this, for all intents and purposes, this god? That was weird. So the guy apologized, and Nimrod killed him. He exploded. <laughs> and after that, and this is where you get these kind of comedic moments where, yeah, that was kind of funny, him being sarcastic to Nimrod. But then after Nimrod pretty much eviscerates both guards down to their bones, he picks up the skull of one of them and says, now, where were we? <laughs> he continues on. And um, he says that the very existence uh in this, okay, let me take a couple steps back. I'm getting overwhelmed, y'all. <laughs> so Nimrod says to the skull, well, since you act so nicely, here it is. See, the very existence was encrypted, invisible to our machine eyes. They came here in secret looking for something, and it seems they found it. I see you mutants. I know your ways. Whatever you're looking for. So two things we mentioned when discussing apocalypse how this information is very important where he would have killed his own kind for it nimrod um oh also Wolverine mentioned that without uh percival's blackout abilities which i'm assuming percival were, it was able to black out the mutant's presence to the machine so without him or that person they are unable to go unnoticed that is kind of shown here where Nimrod is looking at a big screen of his own and he can see these mutants. But I don't know if this is a recording because it looks like it's Cardinal Rasputin, Rasputin's sister, and then another figure. 
So I, I, I'm not sure. So this feels very much like the Matrix through and through. Like these machines that are hunting these humans who are a threat to them. So back on Asteroid K, we get the machine, the 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 flash drive being deciphered. So it looks like a bunch of um, dashes and lines and shorter lines and whatnot. Some some foreign language. Uh, so pretty much we find out that through this, they the machines have been archiving everything, every moment, everything that has happened, like historical records. Uh, and Magneto, or Polaricito, <laughs> says that, um, you know, it's as if we knew something happened on a particular day, the machine recorded, it would still return a search result of a billion actions. So in this, it's like the machines have cataloged everything. So if you want to look up, uh, I don't know, um, July 4th, uh, 1963 it'll pull it up but it'll pull up every single thing that happened every moment everything that transpired that day which is that's what I'm assuming so I'm thinking where normally you may get maybe a hundred searches of things that happen you may get billions or tens of billions where it's like Judy knocked over a coffee mug Carl got into a car accident Sarah fell off her bike Timmy tied his shoe this is what I'm perceiving this to be if you guys have anything different, let me know with the hashtag Xavier's Dream Pod or XDPod. So, throughout this conversation, Rasputin says that you know what they thought. Excuse me, what they thought to do was not to break into the archive and get the information they needed, but to break into the place where the information is indexed. So, this again, I don't know if this is what Hickman was going for. I feel that maybe that was a part of it, but looking at technology now. You can get anything you want by pulling your phone out your pocket. You can get food delivered to you, groceries, clothes. Um, you can look up anything. Back in the day when I was a child, you had to go to the library and search, search the index to find the book that you wanted to get the information that you needed. And this seems like a return to that, but in a more futuristic setting. And that's something that I'm very interested in uh, seeing play out. And I wonder if, I wonder if that's what he was going for. So, um, so they, they got in what they actually needed. Excuse me. They didn't get what they actually needed, but Krakoa is able to decrypt it, which I'm also, um, fascinated at the limits of Krakoa at the things that it's able to do. Now, is it just something it's doing to serve the plot, but to see Krakoa, sync up to this flash drive and then decipher all of this information is like that that's still impressive like what's the point of a um cerebro what's the point of a computer when you have your very own home that can do this like krakoa is a smart home <laughs> so this body uh once belonged to a mutant who could communicate with anything so that big mossy grass earth looking thing that we kind of assume was Groot in the last issue it's actually uh i think it's that elixir guy but kind of fused with um uh uh cipher but again i'm i'm not 100% sure if you know let me know um and then we get zorn who plucks the flower and he says, and this is so powerful. Oh, man, why are they coming up with these lines, man? He says, see, this is really all that matters, that we leave something behind, something that resonates long after our passing. 
For most, there is nothing, just a pointless march towards oblivion. It's eat, sleep, fight, die, just as it always has been and always shall be until the sun swallows us up all. So with this, um, interesting, he mentions that we are all looking for something to leave behind, which very much is you procreate, you make all these kids so that they can carry on your name and that can be your legacy. And even for people who don't have kids, people who are more artistically inclined, usually want to leave past something, a book, a piece of art, a uh, story, a podcast that'll live on past your death. Um, and then even if you're not artistically inclined, if you maybe create a foundation for something, then we know that that foundation ideally is going to live on past your death. And I think you're speaking to more than just the mutants here, because that's something that I think everybody wants is to be remembered after their death. But then in the next line where he discusses eat, sleep, fight and die, I think that's more or less in reference to the X-Men. That's the, all the stories we get. It's some everybody dying every other day. You eat, you sleep, you fight. That's all we get. You don't get too many quiet moments in these books, because why would you? It's an X-Men action comic. Um, Rasputin calls him out for being depressing, but it very much is the truth. So they unlocked whatever this was, and this is where they're keeping the information, they being the, the machines that the mutants are looking for. So Wolverine ends this with, you know the problem with this, right? There's not going to be anyone left to use it. We're only succeeding in getting this far because Percival made us invisible to the machines. And now we won't have that. So stakes are high. We got the information we needed, but we need to go into this place where the machines live in order to get whatever it is that they need. And I think, man, it's so, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. So they're going, the plan is to go in, um, stop the machines, uh, it's going to, it's not going to be easy because of course we are unable to be cloaked. So we're going to be found out, uh, and they'll go and they'll take what they need. And apocalypse says, you know, this is a promise whose guarantee is assured for I will lead you. So I'm, I'm ready for, I saw a image of the fourth issue cover, I believe of powers of 10 and it's an all out brawl. And I think I saw Monet St. Croix and Paige Guthrie on the cover. If so, you know I'm going to freak the f out. So, um, so yeah, so that's it. Stakes are high. Like, we're only in the second issue, and how is this going to end? I keep thinking, what are we going to, what's going to be, what's going to be on the last page and the last panel of Powers of Ten, issue six, when both miniseries are over? Types of societies, planetary. Galactic scale of interstellar societies based on measurements of species intelligence, SI. A species intelligence, SI. Of one is representative of the thinking power of a single mature being possessing average intellectual abilities. SI-1 machine. A single machine mind that is a direct copy of an existing sentient mind or represents the equivalent thinking power of a single sentient mind of a species. SI-10 hive. A collective of individual machines with the unified thinking power of up to 10 machines. While there are hives composed of more than 10 machines, regardless of which species they are based on, ones with more than 10 machines working as a collective begin to fracture and deteriorate as the repressed individuality of each machine overwhelms the hive. Note, unlike intelligences, 
Hives are mature individual intellects working together that were not created to naturally reach an SI beyond their machine state. SI 100-10,000 An intelligence is a thinking machine created to be an amalgam of at least 100 machines acting in harmony toward a collective goal. Note, the Supremer, the Cree Supreme Intelligence, is an amalgam of direct copies of Cree philosophers and thinkers that were merged into a single intellect. While basing an intelligence on pre-existing beings is a common occurrence at this level of society, it becomes less common the further up the galactic scale. And lastly, we move on to year 1000. So the librarian, the blue-headed figure, uh, is speaking to Nimrod, asking it if it worked. Nimrod, again, remember in this era or decade, is that floating machine no bigger than maybe the palm of your hand. Now it says that normally civilizations of our maturity only attract universal predators. This is because the perceived value of this system is found in its celestial resources and not its living culture. Our system is placed to be mined, not preserved. So pretty much we have the people of the year 1000 who are in this space um, expecting um, an invasion of sort. And they're trying to decipher what type of invasion this is. And Nimrod just confirms, you know, it's a place to be mined, not preserved. We won't be preserved. We will be mined. Um, he goes on to say that after hundreds of years of ugly skirmishes and quiet wars, we decided to convert Nimbus, remember that, Nimbus, into a replicant world mine and show the universe what we are capable of. And it seems we have snared a giant. So, librarian, did it work? And so Nimrod poses the question back to the librarian. Again, this is something that Hickman is doing with this, using certain conversations and words and phrases and within the same page not even like across the book and asking the same questions like you did with mystique and charles like you did with the conversation between charles and moira and even now with uh, uh nimrod and um the the librarian so we see this huge scale that this world is on and in the next page you have this dark looming cloud and Nimrod says, I think we're about to find out. And it's like this big black, almost looks like um, carnage, like a symbiote, but it's not. And it comes from the sky. It's a lot of quiet moments. And then these three things materialize. And they say, we, Phalanx, ate your world mind. They fought for sovereignty and lost. But we, Phalanx, saw the whispers God behind it. We, Phalanx, have heard your message. Now hear ours. What do you seek? And another person who is not the librarian speaks up and he says, Ascension. Now there's a few things going on here. Uh, I know I'm probably saying that word, Phalanx. <laughs> P-H-A-L-A-N-X. This is a, uh, a race, a race of um, an alien race in the Marvel Universe that has been around, that actually set off uh, the Phalanx Covenant, set off the events that would lead to my favorite book of all times, Generation X. Now, really quickly, the Phalanx are an alien race who are an offshoot of Technarchy. Uh, they're bent on conquering worlds. It is a techno-organic race which has assimilated the technology of 100,000 worlds and slaughtered 200,000 races. 
The phalanx have existed for 100,000 life cycles and have the collective knowledge of previous generations. Does that not sound a lot like Moira? I don't know how she ties into that or if there is a connection, but it can't be ignored that that's very similar to the 10 lives of Moira X. Okay, now when the phalanx conquer a world, they infect the population and feed off the world until all sources of nutrition and power are gone. Their ultimate goal is to consume the whole universe. Now, I've only dealt with the phalanx as it pertains to Generation X and the phalanx covenant, which I just mentioned. Here, seeing them, I don't have that year's worth of knowledge that came prior to Generation X. Um... I don't think it was much more than maybe a year. When I say years worth of knowledge, I mean years within the continuity of Marvel Universe. But as far as publication is concerned, I think the Phalanx only had been around maybe a year or so before Generation X um, uh, was on shelves. That being said, the Phalanx here seemed to be, to me, a much more threatening force than even Nimrod in these different timelines than even I'd say even Galactus because they're almost on this god level uh and they're huge they're immense and it's the way that it's drawn and it kind of gives you a hella from um Thor Ragnarok look but it is a faceless black and gray techno organic form that seems to be constantly moving um that's what i get from it and uh ascension remember that was one of the things that we were looking at in the last installment when ascension is what we were trying to get at we being the characters in the book so i i don't know what's going on but i'm i'm hoping to figure this out soon types of societies galactic SI-10,000, Technurk, an artificial collective intelligence manufactured by a phalanx that was created to classify, order and assimilate other existing societies. This removal repurposing of societies is a Technurk's sole purpose. A Technurk exists as a singular node, often taking the shape of a world, but can be any series of planetary objects or formations called a KVCH. Each KVCH is controlled by an alpha intelligence called Amagus. Each Technurk believes it is the only Technurk in existence. Technurk are invisible to other Technurk. SI-100,000. World Mind. A world mind is a celestial object, commonly a planet, that has been wholly converted into a singular intellect. These intellects possess a godlike intelligence and act on a timeline of millennia. On the Kardashev scale. A world mind represents a type 2 civilizations. SI 1 million. Phalanx. A phalanx is an interstellar society that operates on a galactic scale and represents an intellect that has total control of a host galaxy. At this level of society, an intellect exists only to expand its own intelligence by consuming lesser societies, and to control the energy needs that expansion demands. If a phalanx encounters a society that is worth consuming by adding to its intelligence needs then ascension occurs. If a phalanx encounters a society that is not worth adding to its collective, then it will seed that society with a techno-organic virus. 
This virus will eventually produce a babble spire that will summon a technurk to remove repurpose that societal waste from the universe. Note. Technurks do not know that they were manufactured to serve the phalanx cause. On the Kardashev scale, a phalanx represents a type 3 civilization. Now like I said, there was a guy on Twitter, um, I Snow Nothing is his handle. Yeah, so he had like a, a, a thread of um, potential, I think like a fan theory, what he thinks is going on. And so I'm going to read a few of his tweets here because I think that uh, he's on to something. <laughs> so he says, the future of powers of 10 is about Mora's ninth life with Apocalypse. He says that the data page in Powers of Ten, Issue 1, on Surviving Mutants, the notation, while Mora X's files is referenced as ML-09, Apoc underscore build. So, and it's laid out here. So, this is something that's been in every issue, and I've looked at it, but I haven't really paid that much attention to it. He goes on to say that in House of X, Issue 2, Moira L2A and Moira L2B are pages that tell a story of Moira's second life uh, being the long form of the same notion potentially abbreviated as ML02 and that would make sense which I agree I agree so what else he says um we've also made it clear on the timeline of nine that Moira and Apocalypse founded the X-Men begin working with Sinister, and her lifetime extends off the page far past the present day. Now, I want to stop there because her ninth and 10th lives have extended. Those are still going on. So, for me, there's three timelines that are active now. Six, nine, and ten. Six, we have nothing, we know nothing about. Maybe it'll be addressed before the series is over. Maybe it'll be addressed in October when all the new books start to, um, start to come out. But, we know that at least nine and ten are still going ongoing right now now uh he says her lifespan explains how moira x knows about rasputin 4 nimrod's tower and cardinal which is what she mentioned in the story when her moira and xavier were sitting at the bench together at the fair uh he says if they know of her powers it explains cardinal's next life comment so guys remember in house of x number one when Cardinal said he had seeded a planted a seed um, flower of uh, Krakoa, and then he said to Rasputin, um, "I will wait for you as long as I can before I close it on the other side. If you do not come, then I will see you both when the world is made again." Which, like this guy is saying, could reference this um, continuous lifespan or timeline of Moira X. Um, he says, "Apocalypse and Moira." Uh, nine are even fighting the same form of Nimrod and the Sentinels that we've seen in Powers of Ten Future in our glimpse at the war without end, which is true. They are, which is something I noticed, but it seems like this person has really um, kind of uh, gave it the good old college try and invested a lot more or differently than I have. So if you do look back on those panels, you can see the uh, Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen and then Apocalypse and Moira in their regalia fighting off Nimrod and the Sentinels. And um, he says, while in her sixth life is definitely significant, which we all agree it's missing, so of course it's significant. He said the reference to mutant leadership and Sinister's takeover in Powers of Ten don't ever mention Magneto or Xavier, which is true. So like I was saying before, who is 
the fallen mutants? Is it just the fallen leaders? Is it just Magneto and Xavier? Were there others? Um, with Apocalypse being in control and us possibly being in the ninth timeline, what, first of all, where is Xavier and Magneto? And then in this timeline, because we do have this green Magneto, what does that say? Well, glad you asked because this person has a uh, theory. He says that this could also explain why Magneto is so long lived and went green. He could be a first generation Chimera with Polaris as a genetic donor, which is one thing that I do like about this series is that I feel like the, everything that's happened before since the X-Men were first created up until now still exists. But the way that he's reshaped, Hickman is reshaping these timelines makes it so that all of that can be true and this be the dominant or the the new continuity. Um, the fact that Magneto, in this guy's theory, which could possibly be true because he is all green, could have been created with the genetic material from his very own daughter, which is something that we saw in Powers of Ten, the first issue where they had the layout of different genetic markers and how they created these chimeras. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Homeboy so far. Um, he also talks about the mutant Shi'ar connection in Powers of Ten, how the ninth timeline has Moira and Apocalypse rescue the first horsemen uh, and return to Earth. So, of course, they were in space. Also, um, it involves the first horsemen. So I'm interested to see what these horse, who these horsemen are, because just like this guy alludes to, at least two of them are women. Or I'm hoping maybe Moira is a horseman of apocalypse. Uh, I don't know. Um, so oh, so okay. So then this guy mentions the uh, four panel page from Powers of Ten, where you have Xavier. Uh, from year one, Xavier from year two, Nimrod from year one. I mean, ooh, let me say it. Walk that back. Xavier from year one, the dream. Xavier from year 10, the world. Nimrod from year 100, the war. And the librarian in year 1000, Ascension. So he says it's only Xavier in the first two panels, which is true. And he said that might be intentional. We have Xavier, Xavier, Nimrod, the librarian. And he said this can signify a hint that the last two aren't a part of the same sequence because right here from the start, they are not there. So we could be dealing with three different timelines. That's what I'm thinking. Timeline six, timeline nine, and timeline 10. That's that's what I've come up with. Let me know what you guys think. Do you think that we're dealing with several different times? When I say timelines, at this point, I'm speaking about Moira um, exclusively because I think her regeneration is a way to have a multiverse and to have alternate timelines but have it be more controlled um like what dc did when they brought their different worlds i think down to 52 worlds something more manageable okay so um he also mentions in powers of 10 issue 2 the old man quote unquote is revealed to be apocalypse and he says that nothing about this storyline contradicts the life nine theory so i'm 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 trying to see i'm trying to see so what do you guys think shout out to i snow nothing for his thread on uh what he thinks is well his uh examination of the timeline and you guys let me know what you guys think do you think that any of the um points that this guy made is true 
Um, what do you think? How many timelines are we in? Uh, what about Moira? Is she maybe the collapse of all things? Because even though she's had 10 different lives, the fact is in most of them she died and the mutants were still wiped out. So could she be the patient or ground zero that makes it so that we never get a successful timeline? Does Will, will the mutants only survive after she's dead and has no more lives? Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place with this. This it was an interesting and entertaining issue, but it did not help me to not be confused. <laughs> I'm still confused. So, uh, yeah, so this is where we are, guys. <laughs> Waiting for the next installment. Let me know what your thoughts are. Do you agree? Do you disagree with anything I said? Maybe the tweets that I read from the uh, from the Ice Snow guy. Um, do you have any fan theories of your own? Do you have some inside knowledge? Let me know. Let us know. Let the listeners know. Uh, really, most importantly, in this issue, in issue two of Powers of Ten, was Xavier's dream fulfilled or was it deferred? Let me know. Um, as always, hit me up on those Twitters, Carefree Blurred. Use that hashtag, Xavier's Dream Pod and XDPod. Want to make this a conversation, guys. Um, hit me up on all other social medias at Carefree Black Nerd. Also, 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 email me, carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com. Give me those voice messages if you guys want to hear your voice, your comment, your opinion, your rebuttal on the show. And uh, use the subject line, Xavier's Dream or Xavier's Dream Pod, something to that effect. In the meantime, guys, check out the last few episodes. Read ahead, read along. Let me know what's up, what you guys are thinking. Want to make this interactive as possible. And that being said... We're going to wrap it up here and look forward to the next installment of Xavier's Dream Podcast. I've been your host, Rain Coleman. Subscribe, rate, review, and stay carefree, stay nerdy, stay geeky, and be wary of that ascension and Nimrod's army, I guess. <laughs> All right. You must see by now there is no you and I. There is only us. We are together, or we are nothing.